Thank you, Megan. That was Megan's first time giving announcements. She did so well. It's like you teach for a living. <laughs> yeah, except that they're a lot younger than us. Thank you, Megan. You did a great job. Hey, I want to welcome you. Uh, some of you have returned from our uh, Easter service last week. Uh, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Um, we are excited to start this two-week mini-series on the two things that Jesus prayed for on the last night he was with his disciples as he was being taken, being preparing to, uh, preparing to go to the cross. Those two things, um, I, I've been praying, 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 what should I talk about after Easter? And those two things came to mind in a big way. John 17, we call it Jesus' high priestly prayer. Because uh, if you pray and you're going to make it your last prayer, you dig it, you contain the, the major things that you want to you know, hone in on. And Jesus prays for two major things. The first thing he prays for is that, his, um, that people in the world would come to have a healthy relationship with the Father. Like he had a healthy relationship with the Father. So that was the first part of his prayer in John 17. And the second part of his prayer is that his church would have a healthy relationship with each other. Those are the two things that Jesus prayed for before he goes to the cross. And so as I was reading through that, I was compelled, and I was thinking, hey, I got two Sundays, why not talk about those two things? And so if you're here today, you're here on a really good Sunday, we're going to be recording all this too, because we want to make sure that our church uh, gives you um, uh, viable, shareable uh, and uh, usable information. So we record all of this. You can give this to your friends. Uh, but my goal today is to talk about uh, the first Sunday on what is the difference. And today's message is going to be, what is the difference in Jesus Christ? What makes Jesus any different from any other person, any other religion in the world? So this is where we're going to jump in. Perhaps the most frequent question that I get is why is Christian, or how, I should say how, is Christianity different from any other religion on the planet? What is a crucial part of Christianity that makes it unique? And so I just want to whittle down to the very bare bones. So let's just talk about what the word Christianity means. Christianity means Christ follower, or a Christian, to be more precise, means a follower of Christ. In fact, in the New Testament, the, na the name Christian was first coined by people who didn't know what these people that followed Jesus were all about. And so they called them Christ followers, and we get the word Christian out of that idea. So if you call yourself a Christian, what you're saying is, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. So the question is, not what makes Christianity unique, but what makes Jesus Christ unique? Because if we're going to be a follower of Jesus as a Christian, our identity is found in who Jesus is and why we think we should follow him. So I've, I've tried to get down to the nuts and bolts of maybe some of the questions that 
I've been asked a lot in my life about what makes Christianity unique. And if I don't cover these adequately for you, uh, I was talking to some folks earlier before we started the service, uh, you just write down on that Connect card, there's a space in there, and you could go online and do this as well, just go to the Connect card, and you can write down on there any questions that you have, and we will cover them in our podcast. Uh, our podcast goes out daily. Um, sometimes I'm on there, sometimes uh, the other pastors are on there. But we will cover your questions on the podcast. Make sure that we get your questions answered because I want these two Sundays to be as fulfilling as they can possibly be uh, to make sure that all your questions, as many questions as, you, as we can, get answered. All right? So, in anticipation of some of the questions that I would get, here's some of the differences, I think, that people would ask as to why, what makes Christianity different or why is Jesus any different? Number one, this is the biggest one. Jesus makes direct claims to be God. Now, if you miss everything, you, you cannot miss this in Scripture. We have a human being making direct claims to be God. Now, is this unique? Nope. Other religions, other cults uh, regularly have this. But we have to start here because Jesus did make these claims. If you are in a religion or if you are in some sort of religious uh, context where they are telling you that Jesus is not God, you are in a cult. Because in Scripture, Jesus makes direct claims to be God. Now, I, can, uh, I could spend a whole message on this. I'm not going to because I don't have time. So it's just the first point. Uh, so I don't want to take up all your time on this, but here's just some, some things that I wrote down uh, as to why I think that Jesus made specific claims to be God. Go to the next slide there. This is, this is really the first one. Jesus told us he was God. Here's some of the things that he did. Every time Jesus did a miracle, he was explaining to us in his activities that he was God. Miracles were not there so that, uh, so that we could look at them and we could say, ooh, that's a nice magic trick. He wasn't a magician. All of his miracles were done for the sole purpose of showing his deity, showing that he was God. That's why Jesus walked on water. It wasn't like, hey, I can walk on water, now everybody watch me walk on water, and then everybody claps and throws money in his hat. That's not what Jesus did. What Jesus did was he walked on water so that people would look at him and say, you must be God. And then he goes, okay, now you get it. Or he would cast out demons and all the demons had to go. Or he would heal the lame and he would heal the blind and he would bend creation. Doing these miraculous things, he did God-like activity constantly. The reason he did that was to show us he was God. Number two, he said he was God and he acted like God, but he also called himself I Am. <coughs> Not only did he do miracles constantly, but he never sinned. And you'll notice that at his trial, when Jesus was at his trial, he was never convicted of sinning. That's kind of interesting to me. They were looking for any excuse that they could find to show he was a fraud. He claimed to be God, and they were doggone it. They were determined that they were going to show he was a liar. So you'd think the first thing they would pick out was an action that he did that would be unlike God. It's interesting to me that at his trial, when he was tried and sent to be crucified, 
There was no accusation of sin. He was 30-some years old. Nobody ever would stand up and say, you know what, he can't be God because he did this. That's interesting. Not only did he say he was God, not only did he act like he was God, but he also uh, behaved, he behaved like God constantly. And then he gave himself the name of God. Now this happens on more than one occasion, but on one big occasion, he actually calls himself the I Am. Now the I Am in the Hebrew is Yahweh. He calls himself, Yahweh literally means the, the it's a be verb, it's the I Am verb. That's why when Moses said, who am I supposed to tell Pharaoh is telling his people that they should go free, God says, tell them the I Am sent you. By the time you get to the New Testament, Jesus is walking around going, you know who I am? I am. I am Yahweh, that's who I am. Now, if you think that that's not right, you need to understand the reaction of the people after he called himself the I am. They, they picked up stones and they were getting ready to kill him. Now, you don't just do that because somebody goes around calling themselves God. If they give them the very name of God, that's really offensive. Jesus did this not only on one occasion, but on several occasions. So people knew he was making claims to be God, and they constantly tried to kill him. For In fact, this is the very reason he was crucified. This is the accusation that they pulled out of their pocket at, at the trial. They said, do we need to hear any more? This man blasphemes. He claims to be God. He said, you will see me coming in the clouds. He claimed to be God. And they knew it. They all knew it. And they wanted to get rid of him. So if you miss anything about what I'm saying this morning, this is where Christianity has to start. Jesus made claims his entire life that he was God himself. And you can't get away from that. No matter how much your, uh, your history or your religion might try and change the facts, read the Bible. All right? I encourage you to do it. Even if you think I'm wrong, just go read the Bible. All right? And, and show me that I'm wrong because it, you can't not see it. Now, the final claim to be God was with the resurrection. When Jesus rose from the dead, his claims to be God are moved in a whole new category. Let me take you to the Thomas incident. Do you know the disciple Thomas? What is Thomas known for? Doubting, right. Uh, I was in a play and I played Thomas and it was hard to get my mind wrapped around the person of Thomas because he doubted the resurrection of Jesus. I mean, that's how he goes down in history. In actuality, Thomas was one of the most amazing disciples. History tells us he moved all the way to India and converted a whole section of India. You may not know this, but there is actually a corner of India that is converted to Christianity to this day. And people there have last name of Thomas because that's the disciple that went there and converted and they took his last name and they just moved on and on throughout history. Uh, I know one wonderful lady uh, Indian friend of mine and her last name is Thomas. She grew up in that area and she knew the Lord as her savior. Thomas was an amazing disciple, but we only know him for his doubting. Let me take you through the story of what happened with Thomas. The reason Thomas doubted is, I believe, because I played him in, in, my, uh, in my play, uh, so I feel like I have a really good handle on, on who Thomas was. I think Thomas doubted because he couldn't bring himself to believe. I think he loved Jesus so much, he couldn't allow himself to open that door again and believe that Jesus rose from the dead. 
The story of Thomas actually is told in the, in the Gospel of John. And Thomas was uh, gathered in the upper room after Jesus had died and rose from the dead. We're not told if Thomas ever saw Jesus after the resurrection until eight days later. In the book of John, in John chapter 20, we have the story of Thomas gathered in the upper room with the door shut and locked eight days after the resurrection of Jesus. Now, we know the other disciples have seen Jesus by this point. Some of the disciples have seen Jesus. A lot of other witnesses have seen Jesus. And they've told these disciples, hey, he's alive. And these disciples were so, I think, including Thomas, were so scared of believing, of opening that door to say, because everybody that dies doesn't come back to life. You, you, like you don't, like the, the, the Herod was not going to send out an all-point bulletin for Jesus after he rose from the dead because he'd look like an idiot if he did it, right? Jesus is dead. Everybody knows dead is dead. But now all these stories are coming in that Jesus is alive. And for those who love Jesus, it's almost like they're afraid to believe it might be true. Eight days later, the disciples are gathered, the doors locked from the inside because they know what's happened to Jesus and they know the Romans might have them next on their list. And they're scared. So they're gathered together trying to figure out, are these stories true? Is Jesus really alive? Can we allow ourselves to believe that? And if or if he isn't, what are we going to do now? Because they're going to start carrying our families away. They're going to destroy us. They're going to crucify us next. What are we going to do? Should we run away? Should we go to Egypt? What, what are our options? They lock the door from the inside, and guess who appears in the midst of them? Jesus shows up. Now, he comes, he comes through this locked door, and he shows up in the midst of them, and while they're arguing about whether or not who has seen or who hasn't seen the risen Christ, Jesus appears, and the person that Jesus talks to first is Thomas. What a gentle Savior we have. He looks at Thomas and for some reason singles Thomas out. Because Thomas has just said, unless I believe, I, unless I see, I will not believe. And in John 20, verse 29, Jesus says to Thomas, have you believed because, oh wait, before we get there. The verse before this is, is powerful. I didn't write it down, I should have wrote it down. But the verse before this is powerful because Jesus says to Thomas, you don't believe. Put your finger in my hands, in the hole in my hand. Put your fist, he said, put your hand, not your finger, but put your hand in my side. You know where they put the sword through? Or the spear through? And then believe. We're not told if Thomas actually did it. Do you think he did it? Think so? I'm not sure I would. I'm not sure he did. I don't know. I, I, I might be like, I'm a moron. I'm sorry. I don't, I don't need to do it. I, I'm just really, really sorry at this point. Please forgive me. But Jesus talks to him so gently. And then he says, my Lord and my God. You see, with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you have an event that establishes Jesus is God. Only God's raised himself from the dead. Thomas knows this, and that's what he says. Jesus said to Thomas, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Up to this point, Jesus would shy away from worship. Every time somebody would come to Jesus and worship him, he would, he would almost discourage the activity. But after he rose from the dead, people are falling down at his feet and worshiping him all the time. He discourages none of it. 
Because once he has risen from the dead, after the resurrection, the shroud is completely gone. Jesus is clearly God. He may have said it, but it's pretty hard to disprove it at this point. Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God, and Jesus' response to him is, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Do you know who he's referring to in this verse? He's referring to us. He's referring to you. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. John writes it clearest for us to understand in the next verse. And this is what compelled me to talk about these two Sundays with you over these next two weeks. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you, read this with me, will you please? So that, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. These miracles, these signs, this resurrection is for you and for me these signs these these miracles this resurrection are so that we can believe jesus is the capital t the christ lots of people are going to show up and claim to be the christ first john says there's going to be lots throughout history Uh, there was before jesus and there will be after him and even today some people claim to be the christ the one sent from God. Christ, by the way, was not Jesus' last name. Christ means promised one. Christ is the Greek translation of the Old Testament word Messiah. When the Messiah was promised in the Old Testament, that was the Christ in the New Testament. That's why Jesus said to Peter, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the one sent from God. These things are written, guys, these things are written, church, so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. God had a promised Messiah throughout history. There are many, many stories that could be included in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Apparently there were a lot of miracles that we don't know about. In fact, John later says in this, in this same chapter, he says, if, if it were all written down, the world couldn't hold the pages. There's so many things that could be written about Jesus. You want to know why these are handpicked to be told to us? So that we would know Jesus is the Christ. These are not stories so we can put our kids to bed at night and make them feel good. These are stories so that we can know Jesus is the Christ. The chosen one of God. And that by believing, you might find life in his name. Difference number one is that Jesus made direct claims to be God. He acted like it, he said it, and he pulled it off on a regular basis. Difference number two, Jesus had flesh and blood. Oh my goodness. Difference number two, Jesus had flesh and blood. Listen to me now. No other religion claims to have a dead, fully human God who came back to life and didn't die again. Let me say that carefully again because I want to... You come to me afterwards and say, "Uh, there are other religions where people claim to be God. Yes, there are, but listen to this now. No other religion claims to have a dead, fully human God who came back to life and didn't die again. There are Egyptian and Greek gods that claim to be gods. 
You know, Zeus, Zeus had two sons that apparently died and came back to life. The problem is, they're fiction. The problem is, they're not true. They're Greek gods. They're not fully human. You couldn't touch them, you couldn't eat with them. They didn't have a mom and a dad. See the difference. There are also rumors of people who had died and come back to life throughout history. Do you know the problem with that? They died again. Jesus did not die again. You cannot visit a place where Jesus is. That was a big problem after the resurrection. They looked for a body and they couldn't find it. They knew they killed him and all of a sudden, not only could they not find it, but now there are hundreds and hundreds of people, 500 people at one time saw Jesus. Now, you can have a lot of people that are sharing lies and stuff like that, but 500 people at one time? That's a, that's a pretty big myth you want to, and then, and then these disciples and many others like them, they crucified Christians left and right. They said, all you need to do is denounce that you saw him after he was resurrected. And people were going, well, I can't do that. I did see him. I ate fish with him. We, we chatted together. They tortured them and they beat them, but they could not get them to, to denounce that they saw Jesus. Why? Because they did. And something like that, you just can't keep quiet. If you saw somebody dead come to life and he was at your house sleeping overnight and you were, uh, you were sharing dinner with him, wouldn't you tell somebody about it? Jesus is the only one who people saw, talked to, ate, drank with, died, came back to life, and then they ate and drank with him and witnessed him, his, his living all over again. And he never died again. How important is this to believe? This is essential. Let me read to you a verse that John would write later on about why this is so important. 1 John 4.2 By this you know the Spirit of God, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come, what's the next couple of words? In the flesh. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from who? You have to believe that Jesus came in the flesh. If you were in a religion that teaches that Jesus did not come as a human being, you are in a false religion. God goes on to tell us, Every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of what, church? Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. What does that mean? It means there's a lot of people that deny that Jesus came as a fully human person. That is the spirit of the Antichrist. That's pretty, pretty rough, isn't it? Point number two, Jesus came in the flesh. And that goes along with this. Incredibly, because Jesus came in the flesh, the reason he came in the flesh, he only came in the flesh for one reason. Do you know why? So that we could kill him. Jesus came in the flesh to let me kill him. There's no other purpose for him being born in the flesh. His flesh had to die. That brings me to difference number three. Our God let himself be killed by his own creation. He let himself be killed. Jesus is fully God and fully human. That's why when we have communion, we read from the passage of scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we talk about this is my body. This is what Jesus said on the last night. This is my body given for you. This is my blood which is shed for you. This is new covenant. Do this as often as you Drink it in remembrance of me. 
This is given for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus had to have a body that would be killed and shed blood so that my sins could be forgiven. Now people in Jesus', in Jesus day mocked this idea constantly. They still do today, right? In Jesus' day, uh, just to make you feel better, <clears throat> this was a regular thing as well. The Romans thought this was the dumbest thing they've ever heard. Zeus was their god. Nobody ever saw Zeus. Everybody knew he was made up, but he was a god, right? And he had sons, and they would fight, and then when they fought, sometimes there would be thunder in the sky. The gods are fighting. And, you know, you make up stories like that, and everybody knows they're not necessarily true. Some people might believe they're true, but they're whack jobs. So, but you just got myths, right? These Greek mythologists, Greek stuff. The thinkers in the day, they, they knew it was, it was mythology, but they kind of followed along with common practice. But when they heard that these Christians actually believed it, oh, they mocked these guys like crazy. In fact, there are pictures we have in history of people that had uh, drawn pictures of Christians with donkey ears uh, because they called them Forgive, forgive the slang, they called them asses for believing this thing. Here's one, uh, one um, <laughs> what do you call this uh, when you, uh, graffiti. Here's graffiti actually from Jesus' day. This is about, uh, this is about uh, uh, 50, 60, 70 years after Jesus. If you go to Rome, uh, right over the Roman Colosseum where they were killing Christians at the time by throwing them to the lions, uh, in one of the buildings there's an inscription here and this guy's name is uh, Alex, uh, Alex Eminos. And if you read it underneath, it says Alex Eminos worships his God. And you have a picture of a donkey on a cross. This is what they thought of Christians. Making fun of this guy. Apparently he was a Christian. Um, it might date a little later than that, maybe around 200 BC. But this was a graffiti on a wall that overlooked the Roman Colosseum. You see, in this day, flesh was a problem. You can't kill a god. That's silliness. That's stupidity. That's what dumb people believe. And so they were mocked for it on a regular basis. But listen to me carefully. What the world mocks, God chooses to make the gospel all about. That's why we have a cross in our church. It's the only symbol that we have, I mean, we can do without any of these things, we can, we can make it work, but the cross is central, why? Because that's where Jesus gave up his life, where he shed his blood from his flesh and purchased our redemption. That's what makes the difference. Jesus had to be flesh because Jesus had to physically die, and there's no greater emphasis in scripture than on this one event. It dates all the way back from Genesis 3.15. You know the book of Genesis, first book in the Bible. Genesis 3.15, after Adam and Eve fell into sin, God shows up and he says, Adam, where are you? They're hiding from God because they know that they ate from the tree that they weren't supposed to. You know the story, right? So they ate from the tree that they weren't supposed to. God shows up, they're hiding. He calls them out, he says, what have you done? They admit their flaws, they admit their sin, and they have to bear the burden of the curse that comes along from their rebellion. But as soon as he sees these guys, his creation whom he loves, in Genesis 3.15 there's a prophecy that there would come a Messiah who would save us from our sins. Don't you think that's really interesting? 
that as soon as we invited sin into the world, God gave us a promise that he would eradicate it someday. Snake in the wilderness. When Moses rose up the snake in the wilderness, all who looked at it would be healed. Forms of worship in the Old Testament on a regular, by the way, snake in the wilderness on a pole is exactly the same as this idea lifted. In fact, Jesus refers to it. When you will see me, the Son of Man lifted up, you will find life. Jesus says that himself. Forms of worship in the Old Testament where the high priest comes and he pours blood over the mercy seat once a year. That blood for the forgiveness of sins. That pointed to the blood that would be shed for us someday on the cross. Every time they sacrificed a dove or a bull or a goat or, or something like that, or a pigeon, if they couldn't afford anything else, every time the blood would be shed, it would be a picture that their sins would be forgiven once and for all by one great sacrifice to come. At Passover. Do you remember Passover? When, they, when the first sacrifices were made, they were about to escape Egypt. And Passover happens and they have to sacrifice the lamb. Do you remember where they put the blood? They had to put it on the sides of the door and on the top of the door. They had to put it on the sides of the door and the top of the door. Do you get it? Sides and top, sides and top, sides and top. You have pictures of the cross all the way through the Old Testament. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul calls Christ our Passover lamb who was crucified for us. In the Old Testament, prophets constantly talked about Jesus Christ coming, this great sacrifice that would come, this flesh that would drip blood that would cover our sins, perfect blood, sinless blood. In Isaiah 53, 5, <clears throat> written 700 years before Jesus ever showed up on the scenes, Isaiah writes, he was pierced for our, what church? He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. All the way through the Old Testament, Psalm 22, written a thousand years before Jesus ever showed up on the scene. Psalm 22 is the very psalm that Jesus quoted when he was on the cross. Psalm 22 points to Jesus and the day of his crucifixion like nobody's business. Let me read for you a portion of it. Verse 16. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. Ring a bell? And for my clothing they cast lots. The guards at the foot of the cross were told played dice to see who would get his cloak because it was made from a single strand of cloth. This was written a thousand years before Jesus showed up. And crucifixion, by the way, had not even been invented yet. And we have news that this Messiah to come would be pierced. Would be pierced for our transgressions. Jesus knew it, which is why do you know how Psalm 22 starts? Tell me if this looks familiar. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is what Jesus quoted on the cross. Now if you're saying, well, Craig, Psalm 22 must have been written after Jesus was crucified. I'd say, all right, I, I, there's lots of other evidence. We can, we can dish this one. But here's, here's the problem. In 1946, when they found the Dead Sea Scroll, they found a complete manuscript of Psalm 22. Psalm 22, this psalm, along with many other manuscripts found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, these were written a hundred years. I should say they were copied a hundred years before Jesus was ever born. 
which means that the copies that they found, they didn't find the original manuscripts, those were written a thousand years earlier, but the copy that they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls buried a hundred, or written a hundred years before Jesus and buried at the time when they were running away from the Romans destroying Jerusalem in 70 AD, they, they uh, uh, put those under uh, radiation treatment and found that they were written at least 100 years before, which means they were copied down from copies of copies of copies that had been copied from 1,000 years earlier. Our ability to crucify and kill our own God is meant to confound our own logic. How can you kill God? But it is essential. It is the, is the defining factor of our faith. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and folly, foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. What killed Jesus? Our sin killed him. Nothing else can kill God. Only sin can kill a holy God. Jesus allowed himself to be put under the weight of our sin, of my sin. In Corinthians it says, he, be, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. What he did was he took his righteousness and our sin and he moved them so that he became our sin and we became his righteousness. That's why God had to die. We call that imputation if you're interested in a big word. Jesus voluntarily died under the weight of my sin. Jesus paid for my sin. In fact, Jesus said, you can't kill me. I'm sorry, it can't be done. John 10, 18 says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. The bottom line is exactly my sin held him on that cross. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. But nothing can beat Jesus, which takes me to difference number four. Nothing can beat Jesus, not even your sin. The difference number four is Jesus beat death this is what the fourth thing that makes jesus most unique jesus beat death you can't argue with a dead person that came back to life i'm sorry you might want to but you just can't that one you can't get over many false prophets have claimed to be have claimed to be god but they all die you know you don't see them anymore and you should know that jesus constantly bragged about this in his ministry he constantly said I'm going to die, and I'm going to raise again. I'm going to die, and I'm going to raise again. I'm going to blow through some of these. Luke 9, 22. The Son of Man, he teaches, in Luke chapter 9, the Son of Man, he teaches to this group of people, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and then be killed, and on the third day rise again. This is years before he's ever killed and rose again. He's teaching this. Right before Palm Sunday, Matthew 20, verse 18. See, we're going up to Jerusalem. His disciples are saying, if we go up there, they're going to kill you. He said, yes, that's the point. We're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be de uh, delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, the Romans, to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And he will again raise on the third day. Did Jesus know he was going to die? Yes. Absolutely. 
Did he know he was going to raise again? Absolutely. The very night he was betrayed, he said to his disciples in Mark 14, 27, Jesus said to, to, to them, All of you will fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am what, church? After I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. And when the disciples saw the risen Lord, it all clicked. Have you ever had a moment where somebody tells you the same thing over and over and over again and you just don't get it until like one moment and then you go, oh, it all makes sense now. The disciples had this happen to them. In John 2, 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered he had said all these things. And then they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is the essence of the gospel. It is the core of Christianity. If you go over to 1 Corinthians 15, you have these two verses. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, we're all wasting our time. You could have slept in today. Oh! (laughs) And it would have done you just as much as if you were here. It would not matter one bit. If Jesus has not been raised, we're all wasting our time. But, verse 17, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. So eat, drink, and be merry. But the truth is that Jesus has risen from the dead. If you read down in verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead and this guarantees our own resurrection. He is the first fruits. That means he's the first one of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man comes death, by one man comes the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, we all die because of sin. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. Isn't that great? That means if Jesus rose from the dead, I will too. And you will too. And my mother-in-law, my dad, and everybody that I've loved in this life that have given their lives to Jesus Christ, they will rise too someday. Why? Because God said it, and he hasn't been proven wrong on anything he said so far. It guarantees our rescue. Romans 10.9 If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has what, church? raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. It is essential to know that Jesus, our God, had flesh. That flesh died, and that flesh came back to life. If it's not true, we're all wasting our time. By the way, Jesus also thought this, because when he rose from the dead, listen to what he said to his disciples in Matthew 28, 18. Jesus said to them, okay guys, you really need to pay attention here. All authority has been given to me. Didn't he have all authority before? Yeah. Do you know why he said it this way now? Because he conquered everything. Everything that has us under its thumb, he killed. He conquered He said, all authority is given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Why? Because the Father gave it to him. He is the conquering victor of the Father. Therefore, go and make disciples, he says, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. And on and on he goes to say, and we're going to have a baptism actually here. Megan told you about it. If you want to get in on our baptism, baptism is about declaring that our lives belong to Jesus. We're followers of Jesus. We are Christians, Christ followers. And that's what baptism is. So if you want to get in on it, you'll hear more about this next week. I'd encourage you to do that. Because if you know Christ is your Savior, it's time to proclaim it loud and clear. And Jesus says that's done through the waters of baptism. 
Because Jesus alone beat death. Jesus alone has supreme authority. Listen, Jesus is the champion of God the Father, and that is why he is the focus of our worship and our obedience. He has shown he is God's Messiah because he has risen from the dead. Therefore, if Jesus has all authority, these go right along together. This brings us to difference number five. If, God has, if Jesus has all authority, he is both your judge and your deliverer. This is what makes him unique. Difference number five, Jesus' death and resurrection clinches his right as God to judge and deliver. Every person has to face this question, what happens one minute after I die? Every person. Now you can ignore that question, most people do. I can't tell you how many funerals I've done where I've stood up and I've said, you have got to accept Christ as your savior before it's too late. This is your proof, you will end up in a box one day or some other terrible way, but it's gonna be bad, all right? Sometimes people come in and one thing I really like, they come and they see the casket and the person in the casket and they go, oh, they look so good. No, they don't, they're dead. They look really, really bad. They look about as bad as they can possibly look. That's what sin does. Sin will take everything from you and finally it will take your life. You may be the best person in the world, but you still live in a world of sin and one sin in your own life is enough to condemn you to death. We die because of sin. Jesus' death and resurrection gives him the right to judge and deliver. Everybody must face this question. What happens one minute after I die? I remember an interview I saw with Billy Joel. Is it too late? Is it too old to talk about Billy Joel? You guys know who Billy Joel is, right? The younger ones here know who Billy Joel is? He's, I'm sure he's a grandfather by now, maybe a great-grandfather. Billy Joel wrote a song for his daughter. His daughter, you got on your iPhone? You got your iPhone? All right, anyway. Billy Joel uh, wrote a song uh, for his daughter. His daughter, one night before he was tucking her in for bed, asked him, what happens when I die? You see, everybody asks a question. You can ignore it, but eventually you've you got to face it. So she asked a little girl, what happens when I die? And he struggled with it, and he struggled, and so he thought, like Billy Joel would, he would write a song. And so he wrote a song for his little girl about what happens after you die to answer her questions, to give her peace in her heart. And here are the words that he wrote down. Good night, my angel. Time to close your eyes and save these questions for another day. I think I know what you've been asking me. I think you know what I've been trying to say. I promised I would never leave you. Then you should always know Wherever you may go, no matter what you are, I'll never be far away. Someday we'll all be gone, but lullabies go on and on. They never die. That's how you and I will be. That is intentional ignorance. That is a terrible answer for somebody that says, I'm going to die. What happens next? Let's sing a song. Listen to this verse, Acts 17. After Jesus raised from the dead, there is no room for ignorance any longer. The story is done. The victor has emerged. The plan is over. 
and Jesus has won. That's why on the cross Jesus said it is finished. He did not mean his life was over. He said this is the final chapter to your victory. It is finished. The plan of God is solidified. That's why in Acts 17, after Jesus raises from the dead and goes back to heaven, Paul writes these words, These times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The question of death and what comes after death has been settled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's no more room for ignorance. You cannot answer somebody, I don't know, because all you need to do is open the Bible. God has told you what you need to know. I have tried to tell you this morning what you need to know. Now you could say I'm not right. That's completely your prerogative, but you gotta take that to God someday. And you could say his son was not enough, and that's your prerogative, but you gotta take that to the Father someday. And you could say, I didn't know enough, and that's your prerogative, but you've got to take that before God someday because every one of us, one minute after we die, is going to stand before God. And there we will give an answer for why we believe what we believe and why we reject what we reject. Jesus is the conquering hero of God. And if we reject that, there's consequences. There will be a day of judgment. By the way, Jesus is appointed by the Father to rescue and deliver because he rose from the dead. But Jesus is also the one appointed by the Father to judge. Did you know that? Sin will be eradicated someday from this planet and all who choose to remain in sin will be eradicated as well. They will spend eternity in hell. Do you know that Jesus talked more about hell than any other subject in the New Testament? Did you know that? Again, just open the Bible, it's, it's right there. Talks about hell more than any other. And the only reason I can guess why that would be the case was because he doesn't want any of us to end up there. He's done everything he can to rescue us, to deliver us from any sin and any penalty that sin will bring. Judgment is inevitable because of my sin, but rescue is available through Jesus Christ. Hebrews 9.27 is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes the what, church? After that comes the judgment. So Christ, having been offered once for all to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin. He's already done that. He already dealt with sin on the cross. It's dealt with. But he will come to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I am eagerly waiting for Jesus Christ. I hope you are too. My family and I went to a play in downtown Chicago, Les Mis. Have you seen Les Mis? So good. So good. I'm just crying oh, the whole time. It was powerful. Sitting with my girls, they're all looking at me going, is this normal for a man? <laughs> crying. We walk into this beautiful theater, the, the curtain goes up, the lights, the, the colors, the, the clothing, the setting, breathtaking. We journey through this whole play, Les Mis. We walk with it from beginning to end. We see the stars emerge, we see the different characters emerge. Some are killed, that's the crying part. Some live. Not many live, by the way. <laughs> and we come to the end of the play. And at the end of the play, you've been through this emotional roller coaster. 
And these people up in front with the costumes and the colors and the lights and the setting have taken you through a story that has powerfully impacted your life. And as they come out on the stage, you clap for them. And, and, and they go from the least person to the largest person. You know how it goes. Like, bring out the groups up front. You go, they did so well. And then they bring out the other groups. They were so funny. They were so good. And they bring out the other people. We hate him, but we love him. <laughs> and they work their way up to the one grandiose, the most amazing, impacting person of all. The one who made the story go from beginning to end and took you on the roller coaster so you felt so connected to him. And he comes out and he stands alone and the crowd stands and the applause starts and people roar and they shout and they holler because he is the star of the show. You need to know the Father has chosen a star of the show. And that is Jesus Christ. At the end of time, only one person emerges as the victor, as the conquering hero, as the star of God, and that is Jesus Christ. That is what makes Christianity unique. That is why you need Jesus Christ in your life, because we all will stand before God someday. And if you stand there going, I don't know Jesus, then God's going to look at you and go, I don't know you. When I stand before God, just so you know, I've got it all planned out. <laughs> I'm going to stand there and I'm going to say, okay, why should you let me into heaven? Nothing that I've done. I've only proven to you that I'm a failure over and over and over again. But I know Jesus loves me. And he died for me. And my sins washed away on that cross. And I throw myself on his back and I'm, I, I ask you to let me into heaven because of his love for me. Amen. That's the answer. That's what makes Christianity unique. The Father chooses his divine Son, and only he will take that final vow, or final bow. Philippians 2.9 Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. So that in the name of Jesus, what church? Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every single tongue confess Jesus Christ is Lord. This brings glory to God the Father because he is God's champion. Eternity will have begun and the play will end and Jesus will be the last one, the last God standing. Jesus will either be your judge or your deliverer. And I pray to God that he's all of our deliverers. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this, this day couldn't be more apropos written for you. I hope I've made it as plain as I can. Our religion hinges. My faith hinges on Jesus Christ. And I implore you to give your life to him today before it's too late. Let's pray. So Father, I thank you for the time that we've had to look into your word and it's, it's powerful to see the uniqueness between what makes Christianity what it is and every other religion on the planet. There's been lots of them, lots to choose from. But only one true faith and that is faith in Jesus Christ. He is your champion and he is our savior.
and we bow our knee and acknowledge that today. If there's anyone that doesn't know you as our Savior, God, I, I pray that your spirit would do the job that my words obviously cannot. You would reach into their hearts and you would twist them to make them so uncomfortable that they would give your, their lives to you even today and make sure their sins have been washed away on the cross that you hung on 2,000 years ago. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.